Father, now as we prepare to look at your word, as we prepare to uh, reflect upon the greatness of the resurrection, Father, I pray that your spirit uh, guide our hearts, that it guides our minds, it guides our understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that in a few moments when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we would be renewed to our commitment to the gospel, that we would be renewed in our relationship with you, we would be renewed in our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in all these things, as we talk of the resurrection and the core of the gospel, and as the gospel is symbolically presented in the Lord's Supper, Lord, if there is any among us this morning that has never tasted of the beauty of the gospel, that has never professed faith in Christ, that has never trusted in the righteousness of Christ for their own righteousness, if they've never trusted in the sufficiency of His death as payment for their own sin, and trusted in the victory that comes through His resurrection, Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would work in their minds and our hearts in such a way this morning uh, that the result is saving faith. And so, Lord, we commit these things to you. We pray that your Spirit be with us. That we confess to you that nothing profitable or good can be done this morning unless your Spirit works in our hearts. And so, Father, free our minds from distraction. Whatever anxieties that are upon us now, Lord, I pray that we would give those to you. And whatever sin that we are struggling with, whatever... Um, Distractions are in our mind and heart, Lord, that you would clear those things and you would bring clarity to your word uh, in preaching and in understanding. And to the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16, the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, uh, there should be a red Bible in front of you or under you, depending whether you're on the front pew or, or further back. Uh, but if you turn to page 853, page 853 in the red pew Bibles, you will be at Mark chapter 16. And we will be uh, here for a few moments, and then we're actually going to spend uh, the last part of the sermon in 1 Corinthians 15. But this morning we come to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it was uh, almost a year ago that we began in chapter 1, verse 1, beginning with what Mark called the beginning of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have worked through these 16 chapters, uh, my hope and prayer is, is that God's Word has opened up our eyes to see Jesus in a clearer way. And as we have reflected upon uh, His death and now this resurrection this morning, that the clarity of the Gospel uh, is, is before us this morning. So we will conclude our series on the Gospel of Mark this morning as we look at these first eight verses of Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 8. And before we read them, uh, we talk about uh, the Christian faith. And if someone asked uh, me or, or they asked you, uh, what is the, the core of the Christian faith? I think that it would be safe to say, well, the core of our Christian faith is the gospel message. And if someone said, well, what is the core of the gospel message? I think it's safe to say that the core of the gospel message is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we have gone through uh, the gospel of Mark, we have seen that the life of Jesus serves uh, as sufficient to be sufficient for our own righteousness. As we see the life of Jesus, we see no sin, we see no imperfections, but we see a perfect life, one who uh, was blameless and there was no deceit found upon his heart. And so this righteous life that Jesus lived actually serves as our righteousness when we have faith in him. 
And then last week we talked about the death of Christ. And we saw that the death of Christ serves as the sufficient punishment for my sin and for the sins of all of God's people. Because the reality is, is that Jesus was perfect, but I am not and you are not. And if you remember, we talked about Romans 3, where Paul is very clear of saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Romans 6, he says that the wages of sin is what? Death. So that someone had to pay the penalty for your sin. Either you will pay it, or someone else can pay it. And Jesus and God is saying the only other person that can sufficiently pay your penalty is Christ. So we saw that Jesus' death was sufficient for the payment of death that I deserve and that every one of you here this morning deserve. And this morning we're going to see that His resurrection serves as the assurance of that payment and as hope in the life to come or the hope in the promise of eternal life. So His life serves as our righteousness. His death serves as our payment for sin. And now His resurrection will serve as our assurance of that payment and the hope of the life to come. So let's read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And Mark writes, he says, When the Sabbath was passed, so Jesus was was crucified on a Friday, buried on that Friday evening, and then Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. So when this Jewish Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, and him being Jesus. And verse 2 says, At the very, and, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now as we read this amazing account of the resurrection of Christ, where uh, Mary and the others come to the tomb and expecting to find this body of Jesus, expecting to anoint him uh, with the spices, uh, they find an empty tomb. They find a stone that's been rolled away, and this messenger of the Lord, this angel telling them, "The, the one whom you seek is not here. And in the other Gospels, the angel actually says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Meaning that Jesus is not dead anymore. And I know that we hear this oftentimes, we talk about the resurrection, and a lot of times just as we talk about the crucifixion, we don't take time to think about why did Jesus die? And here this morning answer the question of why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? Would it have been okay if Jesus had stayed in the grave? Why did He have to be raised from the dead? Why did He have to conquer death? In these things, we remember the promise that's given to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after the sin of Adam and Eve, God is giving the curse upon Satan. And He tells Satan that a a, a child will be born of a woman. And this child will crush you. Talking about Satan. He will crush the head of the serpent. And so when we think about the significance 
of what came about after the first sin. What was the promise from God to Adam and Eve? He said, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely what? Die. You shall surely die. So death came through the curse. Death came through disobedience. Death came as a result of our disobedience to God. And since the time of Adam and Eve, the curse of death has been upon us. So here we see this Son of God who has not only tasted death, but He has conquered death. And why is this sufficient? Why why is this important? Why is this important for us to, to think about? Why is it important for us to ask the question of what would happen had Christ not been raised from the dead? So to answer this question, I think that the Apostle Paul answers it much better than I could ever answer it. And he does so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I invite you to, to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's page 961 in your Red Pew Bibles. Page 961 in the Red Pew Bibles. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Right there, kind of in the middle of your New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here in chapter 15, Paul is dealing with this question of the resurrection. There's a lot of people going around saying things that are not correct about the resurrection. Some are saying that Jesus has already been raised from the dead. Some are saying, excuse me, that Jesus has already returned. Some are saying that there will be no resurrection uh, for those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So Paul addresses this question of the significance of the resurrection of Christ. And while addressing this, he specifically answers the question of why did Jesus or why was he raised from the dead? And the significance for it's the significance for us today. So if you notice in verse 17, that's where we'll start, in the middle of this chapter that is talking about the resurrection. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 17. And notice what Paul says here in verse 17. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So the first thing that we're going to see here is that the resurrection of Christ gives us the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Because what does Paul say? He says, here you're talking about there not being a resurrection. He says, let me just be honest with you. If you want to say that there is no coming resurrection, that means that Christ has not been raised from the dead. And he says, let's just flesh this out. What is the significance of Christ being raised from the dead? And we say, well, it doesn't really... you believe in the resurrection or not believe in the resurrection, it's okay. You can still be a Christian. It doesn't matter. We don't have to believe in these things. We don't have to think about the significance of what happened when Mary comes and finds this empty tomb and what that means for God's people. Here, Paul is saying that when you talk about the root of the Christian faith, he's saying that it is centered around the death and resurrection of Christ. Specifically, the resurrection here. Because what does he say? He says, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, meaning that it's worthless, that it's in vain. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing or bad thing? Bad thing, right? Because, again, a major part of what we hold to as Christians who believe God's Word is that we are called to be a people of faith. And specifically, as we talked about last week, we're having faith that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient for us. And that His death is sufficient a sufficient payment for us, for our sins. And we're trusting that that is true. And we're trusting that these things happen. And Paul is simply saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, then your faith is meaningless. Why? Because you are still in your sins. 
Meaning that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then his death becomes insufficient for our sins. And why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say that the death of Christ is insufficient if there is no resurrection? Because think about this. What was Jesus throughout the whole Gospel of Mark, what was he claiming to be? Was he claiming to just be an ordinary man? Or was he claiming something else? He was claiming something else, right? He was claiming, yes, I am an ordinary man, but at the same time, I'm not an ordinary man. Because I am the Son of God. That I am God Himself. Remember all these things that Jesus did, that He showed how He had authority over the evil spirits of the world. He had authority over creation. That He had authority to forgive sins. If you remember when Jesus said that in the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders were right to say that no one can forgive sins except God, and you're not God. But Jesus was saying, in fact, I am God. So Paul is unpacking the implication of this by saying that, look, here's the reality. If death can conquer Jesus, then Jesus is not really God. And if Jesus is not really God, then He's just another human being like us. And if He's just another human being like us, His death is not sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God because of our sin. The author of Hebrews unpacks this very clearly, saying that the reason that Christ's death is sufficient is because Christ is a lamb without blemish. He is a lamb without imperfection. That He, although tempted, never sinned. And so when the blood of Christ was shed, it wasn't like my blood being shed, it wasn't like your blood being shed. But it was the blood of a righteous man being shed. The blood of an innocent man being shed. And Paul is saying that because Jesus was raised from the dead, it solidifies the truth that in fact this is the Son of God. Because although He tasted death, He was victorious over death. And the grave could not hold Him. Because He was God. And so in the resurrection, Christ crushes the head of Satan and gives us victory and assurance by the fact that this truly was the Son of God. Because He, although He tasted death, He was raised from the dead. And Paul is saying that if He's not raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins because that was not the Son of God that died on the cross. But by being raised from the dead, we can be assured that in fact Jesus was the Son of God because that is the only way He could have victory over death. So we have the assurance of our forgiveness of sins. The second thing is that we have hope in the life to come. What what does Paul say in verse 19? In verse 18 he says, Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Then in verse 19 he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's simply saying this. Here's the reality. He's saying if there's no resurrection of Christ then that means there's no resurrection for Paul. And there's no resurrection for the church at court. And that means there's no resurrection for those in White Level and Castellia and here at Redbud Baptist Church. That if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, guess what? When you die, that's it. So as Paul says later in this chapter, eat, drink, and be merry. 
Do whatever you want to because this is the only life that there is. And if that's the case, you're wasting your time here this morning. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, what you're doing here this morning is a waste of time. If I didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, I would not be here this morning. I would be out doing something else. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying if there's no resurrection, specifically he's talking about if there's no resurrection coming for God's people, then we of all people are to be pitied because we're hoping in something that isn't going to happen. And we're living, hopefully living our life in such a way as it points to the fact that this is not my ultimate home. That I enjoy living here, I'm glad to be alive, but ultimately this is not where my hope is. That my hope is in the life to come. And so Paul talks about how through death, or through one man, death came, being Adam. But now life comes through another man, being Jesus. So just as death came through Adam, Paul is saying life now comes through Jesus, and it specifically comes through the resurrection of Jesus. So that as Christians, this isn't the only thing that we have hope for. So what is, what is the Christian perspective through trials and tribulations? It's not that we can, can just stand up and clap and, and rejoice in the fact that we're suffering pain and difficulties. It's not that we rejoice that, that someone died at a young age, or that we've lost our job, or that uh, we have burdens that we can't handle, or that we have moms or dads or children that are sick, or, or that we're sick. All these things that, that are painful. It doesn't mean that as a Christian you're supposed to just say, well, you know, we're supposed to be joyful, and so we, these things don't bother us. That's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying is that Christians, because of the hope of the resurrection, should have a different perspective on things. Because we realize that these things will come to pass. And there will be a day, as Paul says later in the chapter in verse 52, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This imperishable body body will be gone and we will become immortality. And so he can say, Oh death, where is your sting? Or as the old hymn says, It is not death to die. It is not death to die. So although we may physically die, we shall live for eternity in the presence of our King for all who Trust in Him, all who respond in faith. Trusting in His life as sufficient righteousness. Trusting in His death as sufficient payment for our sin. And trusting in His resurrection as the assurance of that payment. And the hope and the life to come. So we may physically die. But we will live for eternity with our King. And this is the hope of the Gospel. This is why the Gospel is good news. Gospel literally means good news. What's good news about it? It's good news because Jesus is not dead in the tomb. And His resurrection gives us hope for the forgiveness of sins and it gives us hope for eternal life. And without those things, what we're doing here this morning is a waste of time. So 
So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then Christy's going to come and sing a song about the resurrection. And then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And you may say, well, what does the resurrection have to do with the Lord's Supper? In 1 Corinthians, as Paul is talking about the resurrection, you know, he, he said, excuse me, he's talking about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. He tells the Corinthians, he says, For as often as you eat and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So in this, he says, we're proclaiming the Lord's death, which is symbolically represented in the cup and the bread, the cup representing His blood, the bread representing His body. He says, you do this for how long? Until the Lord comes. So, so the idea is that we are not gloomy in doing this. But we're celebrating. We're celebrating our redemption and we're celebrating the fact that yes, Christ has died, but guess what? He's coming back. Dead people don't come back. Dead people stay still. So we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we're proclaiming His death, but at the same time, anticipating His return. Meaning that we trust that He is not dead anymore. But that He has been raised from the dead. And He has promised to return for His people. And until that time, we proclaim the Gospel, we are renewed in the Gospel, and we hope not in this life, but we hope in the life to come that we are assured of through the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray.